through the, the, the seven letters to the seven churches. We are uh, crossing today over the halfway mark. So halfway through the sermon, whenever that is. You never know with me. It could be 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 60 minutes. Right? Just remember that I love you. Someone just said no. I promise you, if I ever hit 60 minutes, you have the right to come up here and take the mic away from me. I, I feel like that's a good limit. If I ever preach more than an hour, or just leave and I won't be offended, right? Uh, well, one of, the, uh, one of the most kind of detrimental things that, that we see, one of the supreme virtues, so to speak, of the culture that we live in uh, is this idea of tolerance. Right? And, and tolerance in itself is not a bad thing. It's, it's a pretty positive word. Um, you know, I, I tolerate certain foods so that I don't die, uh, and that's probably a good thing. There's stuff in the world that we, that we ought to tolerate, but... That word doesn't really mean today what it used to mean, at least in this context of cultural tolerance, right? To tolerate something means that by nature it's something that we, we don't like. It's okay that we don't like it, but for the interest of whatever the greater good is, we deal with the thing, right? It's not, it's not necessarily that we accept something, but it's that we tolerate. But today, when we talk about tolerance or a lack of or intolerance, what the world really is talking about is an acceptance and an approval. So if I were to have a belief of the, of the faith spoken in the culture and the culture disagrees with it, they would say, well, Pastor Vince, you are intolerant. Right? What they mean by that is that for me to be tolerant would be not just for me to deal with whatever is happening that I don't agree with, right? but to accept it and to, to, to in, in some way, advocate for it even. Nothing really less will do. And so in that sense, tolerance has kind of been hijacked as a, as a concept. We are expected, if we are going to get along and go along with the culture, that we tolerate, a.k.a. we approve of things that Scripture clearly speaks against. And, and here's the problem with, with tolerance. Really, it's, it's twofold. Number one, it's not a biblical concept. The Lord has a laundry list of things throughout Scripture that he absolutely refuses to tolerate. And so if God gets to be intolerant to certain things and truths, well, then I guess what? So do we. Because I feel like that means we're in good company. Right? So tolerance, to the extent to which the culture demands it, is unbiblical. And second, the, the notion of perfect tolerance in this world is impossible. It can't happen. Because why? We have differing opinions and worldviews. And when they butt up against each other, you can't accept both. There are times where you have to choose between things. Right? Even within the secular culture itself, there's debates and fights and arguments about what to tolerate and what not to. The idea that we can just tolerate everything is a complete myth. It can't happen. Something has to be non-tolerated. So the question just becomes, well, whose ideology gets to win out, right? But this idea that if we just keep tolerating things, if we just keep 
being a tolerant people. It just means that the belief system that you have goes away. It's not that they are tolerated. And, I, and I'll tell you something. One of the things you increasingly see is in the culture today, tolerance means that we as Christians deal with whatever the culture wants, but they don't deal with anything that we believe or hold dear or hold true. And that's becoming more and more so. Right? Today's text, today's letter, deals with this idea of tolerance. If we look at the churches that we've covered so far, right, seven letters, seven churches, we've written to the church of Ephesus, and that letter talks about the Ephesian church as being accused, they're a wonderful church, they stand firm, but they're accused of being passionless, and to a degree loveless, right? They have all their theology straight, but they lack love. They've lost their first love, so to speak. And so it's a church where the truth is proclaimed, but where love isn't necessarily held up. And that's no good to God. In Smyrna, we talked about the persecuted church, right? It's the first church that doesn't get reprimanded. But the Lord just talks about how much they are pummeled by the culture for what it is that they believe and encourages them to hold fast. In Pergamum, we found, or sorry, in Smyrna, we found, no, in Pergamum, we found what? Last week, the, what's the word? Who's paying attention? It starts with a C. Oh, come on. The compromising church, thank you. Right? Pergamum is the church that compromised. They started to follow the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the old teachings of Balaam, and they looked at the culture around them, and they said, well, we can be distinctly Christian, but we can also participate or think about or, or mingle with the ideas of the Roman cult. And so they were the compromising church. The church today in Thyatira is the tolerant church. John MacArthur once wrote, if Pergamum married the world, Thyatira was celebrating anniversaries with it. They were, they were immersed. And if you remember, the seven churches have that chiastic structure, right? The first and the last are the same. The second and the second and the last are the same. And then now we're in the middle three, right? Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. And they get progressively worse. The first church compromises. The second church compromises and acts on it. And then the third church is dead. So if you want a lifting sermon that flutters your heart, come back next week and we'll talk about the church in Sardis and their death and you will be refreshed and renewed in your spirit as you go out, I promise you. We will get to the church of Philadelphia after that. So if, tomorrow, if next week you leave semi-depressed, you can come back and, and you, can, you can hear some, some good news after that. But today we're looking at this church in Thyatira and so let's stand together as we read from the word of God and let's see if we can't learn a thing or two from this church. This is the book of Revelation, chapter 2, starting in verse 18, going through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith, in service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, 
And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. And I will strike, sorry, according to their works. I lost my thought. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, so you, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's the word of the Lord. This is a unique letter in that it's, it's the largest letter that we've had so far. It's the first one that takes two slides since we started this sermon series, right? Because it's a really long letter. And it's unique that it's a really long letter. And it's unique that it's the only letter in which Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. As a matter of fact, that, that distinction, Son of God, that's something that Jesus calls himself really, really rarely in Scripture. He talks about Son of Man a lot, but the Son of God, there's only a handful of places that it shows up. And this is the only church who has that distinction of Son of God. It's unique because we talked about the last few churches and their cultural background and how they mattered and how they were these bastion cities for Rome. Right? They were these mega cities that had all this prominence and all these temples to the various gods. And everybody would have known Pergamum. Everybody would have known Smyrna or Ephesus. Thyatira is kind of an unknown. It's, it's a very insignificant city, and therefore, in terms of the broader context, a pretty insignificant church. They're not important, right? It would be the equivalent of going, coming into Cleveland, and let's say there's the massive church of Cleveland, but then somewhere down in Canton is the church of, of three people, and Billy Graham would come to town, and he would say, yeah, no, I'm not going to deal with the mega. I'm going to go talk to the three people. You would say, well, why would you do that? That's like, just have them come up, right? Why even send a letter to Thyatira? Just send it to Pergamum and say they should come read it. Thyatira was an outskirts city of Pergamum. As a matter of fact, it served as kind of a fortification city to Pergamum. It was on the outskirts. It was kind of a place you had to go through to get to Pergamum. And so anytime someone tried to take the city of Pergamum throughout history, they would come through Thyatira. And so it's a city that's used to being decimated and rebuilt and decimated and rebuilt and decimated and rebuilt. It's like the suburb, the really small suburb that no one cares to live in. It's not a big deal. And neither is the church in it in the broader scheme of God's people and where they're all spread out and located. But the Lord writes the longest letter to this small, seemingly insignificant church. Thyatira was known as a guild town. All the, all the skills, the skilled laborers, the, the jobs, the guilds of where they would learn to do these things, where they, you know, the fraternity of people that would be people of maker of cloth and the people that would create this thing and that thing, they all would come together and it was this guild city. So if you were a, a, a tradesman, a craftsman, a creator of things, you wanted to be in Thyatira. You didn't want to be there if you were anyone prominent, but all of these people that make stuff for others, 
wanted to be there. And these guilds that they had of, of, of craftsmen, they were really fully immersed in kind of the occult, the cultish practices of the Roman Empire. And so if you wanted to be a name in whatever field you were in and make anything that someone wanted to buy, you really wanted to be in one of these guilds. And to be in one of these guilds, you had to be somebody who kind of partook in those things. So you had a choice as a Christian. Get into the cult stuff or chance that you weren't going to be able to make it as your business or your trade. Right? Some businesses we know in the world today have to make that choice. Right? Succumb to the culture or lose the business that I have. It's a tough choice to make, but that's kind of where they lived. And so Thyatira was, by all accounts, fully insignificant, certainly in no way prominent. Right? In verse 18, Jesus introduces himself to this church. And we've talked about this. Every letter's introduction, the Lord chooses a part of Revelation 1's large introduction of himself that corresponds to what it is that they most need to hear. Right? So he calls himself the Son of God, because he wants to remind them who he is. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not a disciple. I'm not an apostle. I'm not some hand of the king or whatever. I am God himself. I am God's son talking to you. Right? I have eyes like flame of fire. I have vision like a laser. I see everything. Everything you're doing, I'm aware of. Every struggle you have, I can see. All of it, I am well aware of what is going on and what's going on behind what's going on. My eyes are like nothing you've ever seen. Whatever you think I can't see, I can see it. And I have feet like burnished bronze. They are pure and ready to trample anything in my path. Any evil will be thwarted by the feet with which I walk. Right? And so the introduction to Thyatira is this this all-seeing God himself, full of majesty, ready to throw down wherever he needs to throw down in order for the gospel to advance properly and for the church to be who it's meant to be. And as always, Jesus starts with kind of a compliment sandwich. He gives them the things he loves about them. Right? What does he say? He says, they have a great love and a great faith. The people of Thyatira really know how to love. Ephesus should come and learn from them because they seem to have this down. They know how to love and they know how to hold faith. They also know how to serve really well. They are a servant-minded people of God. They do that really well. They're on mission. They're helping. Wherever there's people that are lacking, they're jumping in. They are being the church in a tangible way to the people around them. Great job at that. They're also patient. They have endured a lot of hardship and they've held fast in a patient way. And not only this, but the phrase at the end is the latter works, your latter works exceed your first. So not only are they great at all these things, they're getting better. Right? The latter part of their ministry is better than the former part of their ministry. And all of these things in love and faith and endurance and patience and service, they're a church that's growing in those things. They're serving more this year than they did last year. By all accounts, this appears to be a pretty decently functional church that sounds like one I would want to be a part of. But Jesus has one thing against them that he holds in their midst. And that's that they are tolerating a false prophetess. He calls her Jezebel. It's most likely not her, her name, per se. But, but Jezebel is more of a distinction. Kind of like he talked about the teaching of Balaam last week. It's not that there were Balaam followers that had, you know, Balaam tattoos or shirts or anything like that. 
Her name was probably not Jezebel, but it harkens back to the woman who was Jezebel who married King Ahab in the northern kingdom after it split and led all kinds of people in the northern kingdom, including the king himself, astray to idolatry and immorality. And so he calls her out as a, as a Jezebel. Right? If your name or your children's names are Jezebel, I'm really sorry. I'm sure there's also a good meaning of it, but in scripture, generally, Jezebel is not looked at as the most phenomenal name. Uh, and so he, he calls her that to signify what it is that she is, just like Jezebel had done with King Ahab. So this woman is doing. She's most likely a prominent person in the church, someone of wealth, someone with influence. She has the ear of a lot of people within the church in Thyatira, and she is using that influence to convince the people to practice things that are far from God's desire for them. They're eating food that's sacrificed to idols. That's probably part of this guild participation in the, in the cultish things. They're, they're, they're participating in ways that kind of sounds like the, the beliefs of the Nicolaitans that we talked about last week. But she's leading them to, to practice things like sexual immorality as well. Where Pergamum was starting to compromise in belief. In Thyatira, we see that belief manifest itself in actual practice. The people that are following her in Thyatira aren't just compromising what they think. They're actually starting to live out of that compromise. And it's becoming evident and you have people in God's church who are committing brazen acts of sexual immorality for all to see, and they do not care. She has convinced them and persuaded them to do that. Right? And he has none of this. Right? Perhaps um, you know, we see that this woman is doing these things, and, and God's response seems to be really, really harsh. But we, we look at verse 21, and it provides a little bit of context. Right? It doesn't just say, this woman is doing these things, so I'm going to cut her down. It says, this woman is doing these things, and in 21, what? She, she refuses to repent. The implication here is that she, she's been called out for the things that she's doing and the people that she's misleading. Right? This isn't the first time that this is brought to her. It's not like someone has gone to her and said, hey, you're doing these things. Oh my gosh, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. Let me... Let me turn and change my ways. She's been offered opportunity to repent. She's been called out by the church, by its leaders, by its people, over and over, and has refused to acknowledge any sense of repentance. And so her lack of repentance is why God deals with her, starting in verse 22, the way that he does. He does what? He promises to throw her onto a sickbed, and then he promises that anyone who commits adultery with her will suffer great tribulation unless they repent. He promises that he will strike her children dead. Now, this isn't a, she has like six kids, and he's saying, if you don't stop, I'm going to kill your kids. The children here aren't biological birthed children, but, but a signifier of those who are fully committed to following her teaching and ways. Her children aren't the people who went to the exploratory meeting of the Jezebel Club and heard what she had to say and are contemplating whether or not they want to buy into it, right? They didn't go to the timeshare sales pitch. They've signed the paperwork. They own the timeshare. They've committed fully into what it is that she has for them. And she's saying, you're the children of her who are fully bought in, who aren't repenting of their ways, who aren't turning back to the Lord, who have given themselves over to everything she stands for, I will strike them dead. The end result will be of all of this 
that the church will know that Jesus is a God who searches hearts and minds and who knows their motives, and he will not tolerate her stuff. He'll snuff it out. And if this passage sounds harsh, I will throw her under a sickbed. I will deal with great tribulation with those who follow her and don't repent. I will kill her children, her her most trusted and most loyal followers. I will strike down. That's because it is. Our God is loving and caring and just and merciful, but he's also not a pushover. God demands following allegiance, loyalty, and justice. And when people turn from him, he will strike them down. He does. If that's scary to you, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I don't know why I say sorry. Maybe I'm too tolerant. But the key word here in all of this, if this sounds really harsh to you, is repentance. Repentance keeps coming up. She has done these things, but the problem and why I am putting her on a sickbed is because she refuses to repent. Her followers are doing these things, but I'm, I'm just going to strike them down and give them tribulation. Why? Not because they're doing the things, but because they refuse to repent. Repentance is the key to this whole passage. And repentance is not an apology. We think we do this. We come into church, we do our lives, we live as we please, we, we pray a prayer of forgiveness, and then we turn and we just do the same thing week in, week out. How many of you, when it comes time for the prayer of confession, have been confessing the same thing for like five years? That's not repentance. Repentance is a, a, a seeking of forgiveness and a turning from those things towards the things of God. God is telling them, listen, I can forgive what you're doing. You're not beyond repair, but you need to turn to me and away from this. You can't claim my name and then just ignore what I'm telling you all the time and do as you please and expect to be considered regenerate. Here's the thing, the big idea. Those who belong to Jesus, those of us who belong to Jesus, repent of sin. The refusal to repent of sin identifies someone as unregenerate. If you're a person who says, I love Jesus, he's great, I will come and sing his praises, but when he calls me to repent of the ways of this world and he clearly points those to me and the Spirit convicts me of where I need to grow by the Spirit's power and the Lord will help me do it, and you say, you know, that's great and all, but I like doing it this way. That's a sign of an unregenerate heart. And if that's where you're finding yourself today, I would think that you should search your soul rather deeply. Because a mark of those who belong to Jesus, who have surrendered their life to him, is a mark of those who are willing to repent, and not just willing, but eager. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to be perfect. But that means that when the Lord calls us to things and we start to be confronted with our sin and the reality of it, that we're willing to turn and say, not anymore. One of the primary marks of the church is that it is a, a body that calls out sin. In the EPC, we have the essentials of faith. We, have the, you know, we, we subscribe to the Westminster Confession and its wholeness and all these good things, but, but the EPC has published this, this list of kind of seven, seven statements that they've said, these are the essentials of our faith. Like, these aren't things that make us EPC people. These are things that we believe make us Christians and the church. And without these things, we are not Christians and not the church. And here's number five of those things. The true church is composed of all persons who, through saving faith in Jesus Christ, 
and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit are united together in the body of Christ. The church finds her visible yet imperfect expression in local congregations. Welcome to Stoprez, where the word of God is preached and its purity and the sacraments are administered in their integrity, where scriptural discipline is practiced and loving fellowship maintained. With a perfecting, she awaits the return of the Lord. What are the things? It's for us to be a church. We have to do these things. The word of God is preached. Check. The purity and the sacraments are administered. We have communion on a regular basis. We baptize. We, we administer the sacraments that God calls us to. Check. Where scriptural discipline is practiced. Eh, maybe check. And where loving fellowship is maintained. I would say check to that one here. Right? One of the things that is an essential four aspects of being a church is that it is a place where spiritual discipline is practiced. It's right out of Westminster. That's not something some guy made up a few years ago and put in a happy fun list. This is stuff that has been part of the ethos of the church of Jesus Christ for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. This is an area where the church has been weak. We don't tend to be really good at calling us, ourselves out for our sin amongst the body of us as believers. Right? How many of you, if you saw somebody in our midst walking in ways that the Lord didn't call them to walk, would feel comfortable walking up to them and saying, you know, I, I've noticed that this is a, a part of what you're doing or thinking or saying, and I, I just, you know, I need, to, I need to lovingly tell you that like, God is not okay with that. How many of you, the idea of doing that terrifies your soul? Don't raise your hand. Right? Why do, why do we not want to do that? Well, because it's not loving. At least we think. The problem is, to tolerate sin is what is actually not loving. For us to just tolerate the stuff that happens in the lives of our people, the church, is what's not loving. Imagine this. Imagine if I tolerated my wife. We go to bed at night, gaze into her, into her eyes deeply with all the romance I can muster. And I look deeply into her eyes and I say, Britta, I tolerate you. <laughs> Anybody here wooed by that? Right? We joke, but, but the reality is that tolerance isn't loving. Because here's the thing. For me to tolerate something, by definition, means that I dislike and don't want it to be that way. We don't tolerate things we love. I have never once in my life tolerated ice cream. That's a lie. One time in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I tried sour cream ice cream. I tolerated it. I didn't even tolerate it. I just dismissed it. Right? But we don't tolerate things we love. The definition of tolerance is that it's something we don't love that we have to deal with. And so if I tolerated my wife, that wouldn't be loving at all. Sometimes we tolerate each other. Right? But for the most part, it's a love. We look to do the loving thing. In the church context, it is not loving to allow each other's sin to continue on and fester and grow and continue to go downhill more and more and more. The loving thing to do is to pull one another out of it. Tolerance can't be love because I don't tolerate the things that I love. We want to appear loving, so we tolerate that sin, and God has none of it. He says, those that will buy into her teaching, I'm going to strike them dead, right? That's, that's a problem. 
Christian life is sanctified life. To become Christian is to admit that we are deeply flawed, sinful, incomplete people. That we lack, that we can't do it on our own. And so as Christians, we sit in church and we all, every single day, stand up in prayer or confessions and we admit to ourselves that we're sinners that are doing wrong all the time. But yet when it comes time to actually talk about the wrongs that we're doing, we want to say, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to call. That's uncomfortable. I'll just, I'll just pray the prayer that's on the screen and then go have lunch and feel good about myself. That's way better. I don't want to call each other out. I wouldn't want to dare actually increase the holiness of the body of Christ and in the church in which I serve and sanctify the people and have them sanctify me. I wouldn't dare want to have someone come up and call me out and say, wow, that's an area where you haven't submitted to Christ and through their help get to a point where I can submit those things to Christ so that next year I can be a more mature follower of Christ than I was this year. How, I would never want to do that because that's just too painful. To be a Christian means to be a sanctifying work in progress. That implies that we all have work to do. And we ought to spur each other on to do that work so that on the day of Christ's return, we as a church can say, here we are, we are presenting ourselves to you with your help and your strength and your power as a church, pure as we can be. We have sought every day to continue to make ourselves more holy and more in your likeness so that we get as close as we can by the time you come back, knowing that we'll never get it perfect. But man, we did everything we could. Can you say that today? I can't. There's people in my own life who, man, I would want to call out, but I'm terrified of what they'll think of me. I'm terrified if they will never call me again if I ask them to think about some of the ways that they're acting or thinking or moving in their life. And so we shy away and we let them just get hit by the bus of sin over and over and over and over and over again. Imagine this. Morton Kelsey once said that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. What if you had to go to the hospital for a sickness and you went and they gave you a bed and they made you comfortable and you had a nice 52-inch plasma and whatever, you know, LED screen TV and you were staring at it and you got to watch all the shows you ever wanted and for two weeks you were in the hospital and never once were treated, given medicine, or diagnosed in any way. Would you stay in that hospital? If the bill came, would you pay it? Sometimes we've gone in the hospital and it feels like they've done nothing and then we get a $7,000 bill, right? But the reality is this. We wouldn't accept this in any other circumstance, but yet in the church, that's what we do. You come here, you sit, we, we pray, we sing, we hear God's word, and we tithe and we pour into the church and its mission. But we don't really force ourselves to be better, to grow. We forget the single thing that the church is most supposed to be about. The sanctification, the discipleship, the growth, the continued increasing submission of its people. And so when we come together and we forsake the duty to stop tolerating the sin in the midst of our lives. We miss out on the thing that the church is really supposed to be, a vessel for holiness for the people of God as his kingdom increasingly comes closer and closer. You need work. Your heart needs work. My heart needs work. The moment you forget this, you have shirked the definition of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, how do we carry this out? 
How do we get this discipline off the ground? There's two guiding principles in Scripture, and I would encourage you to dig into them a little deeply. And they are Matthew 18 and Galatians 6. Matthew 18 tells us the how we're supposed to do it. Galatians 6 tells us the spirit in which we're supposed to do it. Right? Matthew 18 essentially tells us this. When you have a brother or a sister who is found to be in sin, approach them and call them out on it and, and bring them into the fold and, and show them where they are wrong and where they've erred and, and where they need to repent and move forward. If they don't listen, grab one or two other people in the body of Christ and bring them with you and try again. If they don't listen, go to the whole church, the council of elders. If you have somebody in our midst, in our church, who is walking in ways that are contrary to the Lord, you should go to them and a brother and a sisterly spirit of love, and you should talk to them about it. And if they don't listen to you, you bring two or three more. You ask yourself, wow, they might not respect me or know me. Who do they know and respect? Let me get those people. And if they still don't listen, you, you call the elders and you say, hey, we need to get in here, and we need to talk to this person, we need to pray with this person. And the spirit in which we do that is Galatians 6, and it says this, <clears throat> Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. <clears throat> the key is gentleness. We're not supposed to go to somebody and be, Sinner! Shame! Right? During the microphone, you know, you, you pull the microphone, and I've so-and-so, I saw them pull in the church, and they gave the middle finger to someone who cut them off. No. You go to them quietly. The goal of, of repentance and, and, and calling out is not to embarrass somebody. It's not to belittle to somebody. It's not to make them feel bad. We go to the people understanding that we are just as bad as a sinner as they are. And the goal is gentle restoration. Every single time we discipline, we call out people for their sin, the goal is never to make them feel bad, but to restore them and to grow them. If the end result isn't they repent, they grow in their faith, they come to be a, a better member of the body of Christ for it, then we're not doing it right. Gentleness is absolutely the key to all of this. And if we don't do those things, God says, are we really a church at all? For those who do obey in the church in Thyatira, there's a very astonishing promise that he makes. He says, for, for those of you who who aren't following her teaching or who are willing to return and repent away, even for the Jezebel, if she were to repent and turn away, for those who obey, <clears throat> I will give authority over the nations. The promise God makes for those of us who walk in his ways and with him is that we actually get to rule with him at his right hand. We will be granted to sit at the right hand of Jesus. Let's be together about the business of bringing the church and its people to what they are called to be. Let's call one another out so that we might next year look at ourselves and say, wow, we have, we have increased in holiness because we've been willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of true, actual, genuine love. And the Lord says, if you do that, I will reward you. I'm going to grant you a seat and you're going to rule with me. Not just in this life, but certainly in the eternal in the next. Right. He says, listen, he who has an ear, let him hear what I'm saying to the churches. My prayer is that we as Stowe Presbyterian Church would, would have that ear, that we would listen and say, yeah, are we really a church if we don't commit to these things? Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you. Thank you for the, the hard truth that we sometimes so desperately don't want to hear because we would rather go on living in the deception of our comfort. We, we get together with people and we share songs and, and Bible studies and, and donuts and potlucks and, and fun events and we, we love the fellowship that we have and we, we, we shroud each other in this idea that we are constantly and beautifully loving and Lord, this is a loving and caring and welcoming church but sometimes we neglect the most loving thing because we live in a world that tells us that honest care is not love. But Lord, just as a father and mother train their children, so you train us and so use us to sanctify this church. That no one here might feel the weight of, of guilt and, and shame, but rather feel compelled to, to increase in holiness. Lord, we pray that there would be dozens of instances of people, even ourselves, even myself where necessary, being called out for the sin in their lives so that they might repent and grow and be sanctified. So that we can look at ourselves a year, two, five, ten years from now and say, look what the Lord has done in our midst. He's made us beautiful even more and more so as the days and weeks go on. Thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God of holiness and of love, that you care for us, that you desire for us to be in right relationship with you, that you will not rest until every single one of our knees are bowed and our tongues are confessing that you are Lord. We praise you and we love you. And all those people said, Amen.